This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 345th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new hadrosauroid from Spain. And I glanced at the notes and I think Sabrina has a lot of new exhibits in store as well. Everything's opening up. (laughs) We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Hippacrosaurus. But before we get into all that, As always, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for helping to keep the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Kessler, Remy Rodriguez, Wyatt, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Bradley, Red Sox Rex, Arlo Soros, Dino Moe, and Wouter. Yes, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. We appreciate all our patrons' support and our listeners for listening. And for those of you who haven't joined our growing dinosaur enthusiast community yet, you can help us get to our next milestone. We'll be doing a live Q&A on YouTube once we reach it. And we're, we're pretty close. We've been close for a few months now. <laughs> yeah. Just need to get there. <laughs> so you can join by going to patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, we've got our new hadrosaur, hadrosauroid, more specifically or more generally, depending on how you look at it. It's completely hot off the presses because we released this episode six hours late because that's when it was the embargo was lifted on this news story, which is it's always fun when we could do late breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> so this one was published in PLOS One by Andres Santos Cubedo and others. And it is from Spain. It might sound familiar. There are lots of hadrosauroids in Spain. A couple of them are Magnamanus, Proa, Iguanodon, Mantellosaurus, and Moreodon. That's a lot. Maybe it's Morelodon, but the area is called Morea, so I feel like it should be Moreodon. Yeah, it is quite a few hadrosauroids, and they're all in northeastern Spain. That's where all the Cretaceous rock and Cretaceous dinosaurs especially are found. This new hadrosauroid was actually found in 1998, which was before the law restricting fossil extraction in that region was passed. I guess it was passed a little bit later in 1998, which might be why it's taken so long to get published. But weirdly, it's been at the same museum since 1999. So I don't really know why it's taken so long to get described. My best guess is that they didn't realize that it was unique. (laughs) And since it's not a huge find, it's just a single bone, that might have limited the interest in it a little bit. Although maybe saying that it took a long time to get published isn't really the few years here or there isn't that big of a difference since it was in the rock for 129 to 130 million years since it's from the early Cretaceous. 
The dinosaur was found in the Mirabel Formation, which is in the Morea Basin. And again, that's in northeast Spain. The full name of the dinosaur is Portelsaurus sospinati. And Portelsaurus, or Portelsaurus, if you want to anglicize it a little bit extra, is after the town Portel, where it was found. And Sospinati is after Vicente Sospinat, who's a local geologist of some report. Cool. Unfortunately, all they found of this new dinosaur is a right dentary, and it's not entirely complete, but I would consider it nearly complete. It's not just like a really small fragment. It's most of it. But it was enough to know it was unique enough? Yeah, it has a couple unique features to it. It's missing a bump on the bottom near the back where there's usually a bump. And it also has an quote unquote oval cavity below the 11th and 12th tooth sockets, Hmm. which is really weird. And they didn't really explain what it might be used for or why it was there. But it's definitely unique (laughs) to Mm -hmm. this dinosaur. So actually, for once, it's a single bone, but it does have quite a few features that make it look unique. Overall, it's relatively small for a iguanodontian-type jaw. It's about 30 centimeters long and about 10 centimeters tall, or about a foot long by about four inches tall. It's missing the coronoid process, which should stick up a little bit higher, and that back hinge of the jaw doesn't really stick up that high either, so it, it might be a little bit shorter overall than what you'd expect sort of proportionally. The jaw does look really tiny next to the iguanodon dentary. It's much closer in size to Mantellosaurus, for example. So if you've ever been to the Natural History Museum in London and seen the Mantellosaurus off in the side there near the blue whale where there used to be Dippy, (laughs) there's Mantellosaurus there and it's like around human height and maybe about 20, 22 feet long. That's sort of the ballpark of size that Portellosaurus would have been. And that means it probably would have been under a ton, too, because that's what Mantellosaurus is estimated to be. Whereas Iguanodon was about six to seven times that size by mass. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really big. Which maybe is last week why they named it Iguanacolossus, because just Iguanodon in general Mm -hmm. is very big. (laughs) So So you came around to the name. A little bit. But I still think if you name it Iguanacolossus, it needs to be bigger than Iguanodon. But these estimates are really very loose ballparks because... Basing the size of an animal on its jawbone is not advised. (laughs) Just gives you a rough estimate. And I'm also not sure if it was an adult or a juvenile or where it was in that sort of growth. So this could be much smaller than the maximum adult size. We don't know. So with that weird oval cavity in the jaw, they did put in some effort to try to determine if it was a paleopathology. Because a lot of times if there's bone missing somewhere, it's because there's some bacteria or some other issue that's eating away at the bone. And that's where you get the hole from. It, it oftentimes is not just the way that the bone grew naturally. So they did a CT scan of it and they found that it's really deep. It goes about three quarters of the way through the bone. And it's about nine millimeters wide, 21 millimeters long, and 33 millimeters deep, which makes it very roughly one by one by a third of an inch, which is a pretty big hole to have in your jaw. Yeah. <laughs> For no apparent reason. It wasn't an injury or some kind of disease? They couldn't find... So they looked for telltale signs of paleopathologies, specifically if the bone was any thicker or expanded 
that could be the sign of like an infection making it puff up around the edge or something it also wasn't fused or eroded or resorbed which is other things that can happen you know if if the bone is being eaten away for some reason so they didn't see any of that and they didn't see any other abnormalities around it either it looks like normal bone just in that shape hmm. which is really strange they didn't have a hypothesis for why it might be like that i guess maybe it could be for lighter weight or one of those typical sorts of dinosaur but this isn't a theropod so they tend to not have as much of that it's probably hard to have a hypothesis when you only have the one bone to work with too yeah that's true and i it could be some weird individual variation i suppose too and not necessarily a paleopathology but it could just be like a weird maybe deformity for lack of a better word it's just strange some kind of individualization could be yeah i, I really have no idea they looked at similar pathologies or similar holes i should say in other dinosaurs and they basically couldn't find any what if this is an example of how you know humans where our wisdom teeth are evolving and so some people have what two wisdom teeth some people have up to five or something mm -hmm. and maybe this dinosaur is in the middle of evolving something yeah it's possible I don't know what's going on. It's pretty far below the teeth, so it's probably not like an extra tooth, but maybe it was like extra blood supply for some kind of weird thing that we don't know about. I don't know. It was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried to find out what that hole was doing there, and I couldn't find it, but it is a pretty good reason to name a new species when you find something strange like that. Also, they did their phylogenetic analysis because everybody always does that. They found that the closest relatives are Oranosaurus and Bolong, but they're probably not synonyms. They're the only ones in the little group phylogenetically, the three of them, with Portelsaurus. But since Aranosaurus is from Niger and at least four million years younger than Portelsaurus, and probably even younger still than that, and Bolong, although being closer in age, is from Liaoning, China, which is very far away, it's likely that these are in fact, relatives and not going to get synonymized later. Plus, they're missing those two features, that bump and that hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As is often the case, it's a more distant relative to some of its closer Iberian neighbors like Magnamanus, Proa, and Iguanodon. However, it is closer related to some early Cretaceous hadrosauroids like Mantellosaurus and Moreodon, although not as close as it is to Aranosaurus and Bolong. I think it's funny. This really shows how many hadrosaurs there were because you're talking about a new hadrosaur discovery, a new naming of a dinosaur, and in it we've mentioned eight different hadrosaurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, and a lot of those are just from northeastern Spain. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. Right, so a it's lot. a really small area. Mm -hmm. Oh, I guess you've you've got Aranosaurus and Bolong, but still yeah and it's weird too because those are you know you've got an african and ibero armorican island presumably in the early cretaceous time and way over in china all three of those that seem to be close relatives so not only are there all sorts of dinosaurs all over the place it looks like they were traveling a lot back and forth too which might be how you get all that diversity if they can make it somewhere new manage to mate with something or evolve in a different way because now they're in a new location mm -hmm. then you get a whole ton of diversity so many hadrosaurs yes and just in case you're curious and you want to see it i don't think it's on display but it is stored at the collection museografica cinco torres what's well, a good segue into our museum news 
So the first bit is that the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pennsylvania extended their dinosaur armor exhibit. And now it's running until the end of this month, July 31st. You can guess it features ankylosaurs, but there's also prehistoric invertebrates, fish, reptiles, and mammals. Nice. There was a piece of the Zool traveling exhibit that had quite a bit about armor. And remember, it had like different medieval weapons mm-hmm. that they were relating to like the tail, you know, obviously like a mace or something like that. But there were other ones, too, that looked very ankylosaur tail-like. Mm-hmm. But it, it'd be interesting to see if they do anything like that in there, too. I know we have at least some listeners in the area who've probably gone or are planning to go. So if you hear this, post some pictures, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Saratoga Springs, New York, Universal Preservation Hall is getting dinosaurs in motion, the exhibit. Do you remember that one, Garrett? I do, yeah. There's like, there's some big lever you could use to make like T-Rex chomp or something like that. We saw it in North Carolina. I don't remember if it was a T-Rex, but yeah, some kind of therapy. They have all these lever and pulley systems and remote controls. It's really interactive. It was pretty fun. They were all made out of metal from what I remember. Recycled metal. Yeah, and they've got 14 interactive dinosaur sculptures that look like fossils, like skeletons. So this exhibit runs from July 25th to October 15th. It's a fun one. Next, the Mall of America in Minnesota is getting some dinosaurs in their parking lot. Oh. Specifically the Southeast parking lot, which I guess you have to specify. I've been there once and I remember it being huge. It is very big, yeah. They had, I I was thinking maybe this was going to be in the Lego land because they had some dinosaurs made out of Lego (laughs) in Lego land. (laughs) Well, this one's dinosaur drive through So you drive through it in about 45 minutes. They've got 50 animatronic dinosaurs. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So it's open from now until July 11th. Gives you a little bit of time by the time this airs. And then at night, the dinosaurs are lit up with some colorful lights. Nighttime in Minnesota doesn't last that long these days, though. Being in the <laughs> middle of the summer, <laughs> they're high latitude. Good point. In Louisville, Kentucky... Louisville Zoo has an exhibit called Dino Quest from now until September 19th. So they've got 19 animatronic dinosaurs that's spread throughout the zoo, and the zoo is like 130 acres. And it includes Triceratops, T-Rex, Parasaurolophus, Tenontosaurus, Deinonychus, Herrerasaurus, Velociraptor, Oviraptor, and more. So not all the usual ones that you see. Mostly usual ones. Tenontosaurus, though, is mm-hmm. sort of a deep cut. Herrerasaurus, too. Oh, yeah. I think of that as a common one, but it's just, it gets brought up a lot because it's a weirdo. Mm-hmm. It's an early one, too, but... But you don't see it too often. Good point. I've also got a quick update on Jocelyn. That's the nine-year-old who was fighting cancer and wanted to go to Dinosaur National Monument. So they had a fundraiser, and we talked about that, and... She just got back recently from her 14-day road trip to visit Dinosaur National nice. Monument. Yeah. The article said that it was she had a lot of fun, and she got sworn in as a junior ranger. She got <laughs> to touch some dinosaur bones. Good trip. Yeah, I think, I think they still have a touch area at the quarry exhibit hall. Yeah. Pretty sure we've got pictures. Yeah. It's always exciting the first time you get to touch a dinosaur bone. Oh, yeah. Well, seeing that wall is amazing. Yeah, that, that wall is pretty epic. My favorite part is actually the sauropod, where the, there's like several vertebrae leading up to the Camarasaurus skull. Mm-hmm. I think that part looks the coolest. Yeah, me too. Because the, there's a big part of it that's just sort of a giant jumble of random bones. And without someone there to show you which bone is which, or I think they have interactive displays now that help you see what's there. Mm-hmm. But without that, it just looks like a whole bunch of bones. Look at you being the one to bring up the sauropod. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. I appreciate a good fossil, even if it's a sauropod. 
There's a toy maker in Japan called Bandai Spirits Co. Limited, and they're making models of dinosaur fossils with limestone-based plastic, and the idea is to be more sustainable with making their toys. And they say that limestone also feels heavier and has a different texture from polystyrene, which is what they usually use. Also known as styrofoam in some forms. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to reduce their use of petroleum-based plastics, and they're making tyrannosaurus and triceratops models. It's cool. I didn't know you could make limestone-based plastic. That's interesting. Yep. I didn't know that either. I guess that's more sustainable. It doesn't seem that sustainable, but compared to polystyrene, I guess. <laughs> the thing that takes forever to decompose. Mm-hmm. In Hillsborough, California, the woman who owns the Flintstone house settled the lawsuit with her town. I think we talked about it when they first started the lawsuit because that was in March of 2019. I think we did too. I didn't realize how close it was to us though. (laughs) Yeah, for some reason I kept thinking it was much further away, but we might be able to drive there and see it for ourselves. Yeah. I'm not a huge Flintstones fan, but if there are any good dinosaur sculptures with it, then it would be worth it. Yeah, Dino. Just a little Dino. (laughs) You don't have the big like brontosaurus that he slides down its neck or anything. I don't know. I've never been there. I guess we got to go check now. But the town that she lives in, Hillsboro, said that the decorations were, quote unquote, highly visible eyesore. Well, it's good to hear that they're highly visible. So when we go by, we'll be able to see them. <laughs> you could drive by, yeah. They're not hidden away somewhere. Is that neighbors and residents complained and that the dinosaur statues and sculptures violated building codes. They didn't have the proper permits. So this lawsuit, they wanted the property to be declared a public nuisance and have the statues taken down. Quite a bummer. Yeah, it's weird because the house was designed in 1976. So it was like, why now? And it's supposed to, like, it was designed to look like the Flintstones house. I think so. So it makes sense. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I could understand if it was like really flammable sculptures or something, because, you know, we're in fire season and that could be a concern. But if they're just regular sculptures and it's just like, I don't like the way these look, come on. What kind of a nuisance is that? Just don't look at them. Mostly that if they've been there since the 70s, why yeah. now? But anyway, I don't know the details except that the owner, Florence Fang, countersued and they both settled. She can keep her decorations. She needs to get permits, but the city's going to approve her permits. That's good. Yeah. It's an interesting lawsuit. <laughs> This next one, I saw a cool post from the site, the Hall of Fossil Halls, and it was about the digitization of fossil halls and basically how digital exhibits have grown during the pandemic, which makes a lot of sense. We saw a lot of them posted about a few, and it includes these newly designed virtual spaces. So it gives a little bit of history of the digitization of fossil halls. One of the first ones was in 2014 by Digital Museums Canada, and they had a bunch of online exhibits by Canadian museums. And now we've got museums like the Natural History Museum Vienna that 3D scanned fossils of mammals and dinosaurs and uploaded digital models. And they're not the only ones doing that. We've, we've talked a bit about a lot of museums that are doing that. Yeah, that's great. And then the New Mexico Museum of Natural History digitized the exhibit Tiny Titans, Dinosaur Eggs, and Babies. And we, we talked about this one. We saw it. Do you remember, Garrett? It was you go online and it looks like a digital version of a museum <laughs> with that gallery or with that exhibit. And then you can click around and get more information. And it's kind of like you're reading the signs in a museum. I don't remember that, but that sounds good. Yeah. 
And then the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History designed a whale evolution from land to sea. Oh, that's a fun one. Exhibit, yeah. Yeah, I love those fossils. That transition of whales to from land living mammals back into the ocean is one of the most interesting evolutionary stories. Yeah, and they look so weird. They do. And that they managed to be like the biggest thing in the ocean after evolving from something on land is so weird too. Mm -hmm. So you can see three skeletal mounts in a digital gallery and then they've got information on signs on all sides. Nice. It reminds me of the Natural History Museum of the University of Pisa that we went to in Pisa, mm -hmm. Italy. It had, I thought, the coolest, at least one that I've seen, representation of all these whale skeletons. And then going up to it, they had the paleontology story showing those like sculptures of the weird, you know, big, I guess they were carnivorous, like wolf-ish, but like big weird wolves. And then they started getting like flipper feet yeah. and then eventually turned into whales. And it's a really long hallway too. Yeah, it was great. That was such a cool place. Highly recommended if you're mm -hmm. ever in Pisa. And they do have uh, at least one dinosaur skeleton. Actually, they had a, a small dinosaur area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not the easiest place to get to. We ended up having to rent a car to get there because we had to see it. So yeah. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> if that means driving in Italy, sure. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, now we're getting into the, the dinosaur media news. Well, I guess digital exhibits or media but anyway feels different because that's about museums so there's another music video <laughs> this one it was 
really fun mashup of Was Not Was's Walk the Dinosaur with Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood and some of the Gap Band's I Don't Believe You Want to Get Up and Dance, Oops Upside Your Head. I don't know that one. <laughs> I didn't know that one either, but well, maybe it's because I'm most familiar with this song, but it felt like the dominant song in the mashup was Walk the Dinosaur. That's what I was. I heard you listening it in the background and I mostly heard the Walk the Dinosaur as well. Yeah. So it's a really fun mix and there's a video that goes with it that's really entertaining and it even includes clips of the TV show Dinosaurs. So if you're a fan of mashups like Sabrina, mm -hmm. <laughs> she recommends it. <laughs> and then next, I uh, posted about this in our Discord too. Ark Survival Evolved has inflatable T-Rex costumes in its summer-themed event. They look pretty good too. I saw the picture of the inflatable costumes and I didn't realize that they weren't actual people in inflatable costumes. They're just a little too shiny, but other than that. Yeah, I guess that is one of the main giveaways you get in, in CGI, things being too shiny or not shiny enough. Mm -hmm. So the event's called Arc Summer Bash. It goes from now until July 14th. Apparently they've also got super soakers and retro sunglasses, skins, and Hawaiian shirt patterns. I'm going to have to see if we can enable that for our Arc server. Yeah. Because I had the Christmas theme enabled for a little while and there was like this weird Christmas giant ground sloth thing that like shot out presents. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one looks cool too. Well, the trailer is really great. It shows a guy on a beach running from a dinosaur roaring and you see the shadow of the dinosaur. Then it, the dinosaur comes out and somebody in one of these inflatable T-Rex costumes and then they point and laugh. <laughs> And then the picture they have of it is really great, too, because it's a group of them. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to organize a time where we can all play on the ARC server that's connected to our Discord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be fun. Next, we've got some Jurassic World Dominion news, but spoiler alerts, so you might want to fast forward a little bit. There's a new image from Jurassic World Dominion that came out that shows the, they call them practical models. Also known as puppets. Puppets, yeah, that are used in the film. It's... I think it's a pair of Dimorphodon, the pterosaur. It's really detailed. You see a lot of patterns along the face and colors. They've got reds mixed in with grays. It's really cool. I love the practical models. Yeah. Hopefully they use some puppets for the dinosaurs too, not just the pterosaurs. Yes. And I found out that Dominion's going to start four years after Fallen Kingdom. I can't remember if we already knew that. You mean plot-wise there's a four-year gap? Mm-hmm. That's about how much of a gap there was between Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom, I think, right? Oh, I thought that was a two-year gap. Oh, was it two? Okay. It had been long enough that like all the computers and stuff were like overgrown and like they weren't sure if it was going to work and all that kind of stuff. So apparently for Dominion, there's going to be a lot of teasers between now and when the movie comes out. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my trying not to listen to the spoilers the other week. Definitely didn't work because I had to edit the podcast, so I had to listen to all of it anyway. Did you forget? I don't know why I didn't realize that. Yet. <laughs> but we went and we saw Fast 9 or F9 so that we could watch that trailer in the IMAX. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool. As promised, it, it's like in the Cretaceous and it's all like much more realistic dinosaurs mm -hmm. in it, which I think is a way of them just being like, no, we know what dinosaurs... Everybody stop criticizing us for our unrealistic yeah. dinosaurs. Well, everyone, we can't make them. Everyone we've talked to who has worked in the film in whatever capacity, they really know a lot about dinosaurs. They do, yeah. And they read the papers and they keep up with the news. 
So they know. <laughs> yeah, especially the paleontologists. Mm -hmm. But we have talked to some paleontologists who are like, I tried to convince them to do this thing, you know, like add feathers or stop with the pronated hands or whatever. But the canon of it was too strong, so they didn't want to change it. Mm -hmm. But I like this tact. And I hope that if they do add new dinosaurs in Dominion, that they they make them more realistic. And this is their way of explaining like why they're doing it or something yeah. to that effect. But one thing I will say, they show an oviraptor eating an egg in the trailer and come on. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. We, Garrett and I both had a reaction of, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Like you see the oviraptor and then there's like a nest next to it and you're like, I see where this is going and I do not approve. <laughs> and then the oviraptor of course goes over and breaks it open. It's like, really? That's okay. It might've happened. It might've, but it, it's just such a wrong trope. But I am looking forward to seeing where that goes. I hope there's a longer segment of realistic dinosaurs than just what's in the trailer. I think there will be. I hope so. It looked like it might have just been backstory for showing like how the mosquitoes suck blood and then get trapped in amber. Maybe. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And four years after Fallen Kingdom, that means four years of dinosaurs roaming around all over. Yes. Yeah. If nothing else, it'll just be fun to see all the weird modern situations they put the dinosaurs in. Mm -hmm. And what happened to Blue? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Guess you're not as invested in Blue <laughs> as I am. I like the herbivores more. Where are the ankylosaurs at? <laughs> What's going on with the ceratopsians and the sauropods and all that good stuff? They have to find food sources. Yeah. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Hippacrosaurus, which was a request from Wiser via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Hippacrosaurus was a Lambiosaurine hadrosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada, and Montana in the U.S. It looks like Carithosaurus. They've got the tall, hollow, rounded crest, but its crest is not quite as tall. Gotcha. The closest relatives to Hippacrosaurus are Carithosaurus and Allorotitan. Hippacrosaurus is estimated to be about 30 feet, 9.1 meters long, and weigh 4.4 tons. So as I mentioned, it had this rounded, hollow crest on top of its head, and some descriptions refer to it as a helmet crest. This crest could be for display and identifying species, and it could probably make some sounds. Hippacrosaurus had tall neural spines, and that made it look like it had a tall back. It was bipedal and quadrupedal, and it had a broad beak, and of course, dental batteries with hundreds of teeth, and it constantly replaced its teeth. It ground its food in a way that resembles chewing. It held the food in its jaws with a cheek-like organ. And it could eat food on the ground and food that was up to 13 feet or 4 meters above the ground. That's pretty good range. Mm-hmm. Gotta make use of all those teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Hippacrosaurus was endothermic, and that's based on a study by Reese Barrick and others in 1996 that found the oxygen isotope ratio in its bones. And they found there was not much variation in the ratio in the bones, so it had a similar body temperature in its whole body. Also in 1996, John Rubin and others found that Hippacrosaurus had lower metabolic rates compared to modern birds and mammals. The type species is Hippacrosaurus altispinus. The holotype was found in 1910 by Barnum Brown and includes vertebrae, neural spines, several ribs, ilia, partial right pubis, right ischium. It was found in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, no skull was found at the time. Brown described the fossils in 1913 and said that they were a new genus similar to Sauralophus. And the genus name, 
Hippacrosaurus means near the highest lizard. Interesting. It's named because Brown said it was almost as large as a T-Rex. And it's remember, it's one of the earlier named dinosaurs. So it was one of the largest ones known at the time. Gotcha. And the T-Rex is the king. So if you're near the king, you're near the highest. Yeah. <laughs> well, also the species name, Altospinus, means high spines because it had some of the tallest spines, hadrosaurs. Cool. But Barnum Brown wrote, quote, it is the largest of all known trachodonts. Approaching in size, the great carnivorous dinosaur Tyrannosaurus of the later Lance Formation. It also reminds me, I wonder how much of a high back or how many big spines Portellosaurus had that we were talking about earlier. Because if it's related to our Anosaurus, maybe it had a really big sail back kind of thing going on. Yeah. And Spain isn't that far from Morocco too, so maybe that region had the high spines. True. Hard to know from a jawbone, though. Yeah, it's true. It's the opposite of this one. Find the jaw first, find the body later. This one, they found the body first, (laughs) skull (laughs) later. So, as you can imagine, Hippacrosaurus was one of the earlier named dinosaurs. So, there's a bit of confusion when it comes to naming other specimens found after it. And that includes Chineosaurus Tomanensis, which was named by Lawrence Lamb in 1917 based on a skull, limb bones, vertebrae, and pelvic bones, and it was found in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, and Prochineosaurus, which was named by Richard Swan Lowell and Nelda Wright and found in the Two Medicine Formation. In the 1970s, Peter Dodson suggested these genera were probably juveniles of other Lambiosaurines and thought Chineosaurus was a juvenile Hippacrosaurus altospinus. Prochineosaurus looked different and was later found to be Hippacrosaurus stabingeri, which wasn't named until 1994. Hippacrosaurus stabingeri was named based on embryos and hatchlings found near nests in the Two Medicine Formation, and it was, quote, the largest collection of baby skeletal material of any single species of hadrosaur known, end quote. Nice. It was Jack Horner and Phil Curry who wrote about the nesting ground found of Hippacrosaurus, and then they named it. Hippacrosaurus stabingeri. And they talked about three nesting horizons, one in Alberta, two in Montana, that had many eggs and babies ranging from embryos to large nestlings. Juveniles and adults were also common. Wow, that is a, that's a ton. Mm-hmm. The species name for Hippacrosaurus stabingeri is in honor of the late Eugene Stabinger, who first described the two medicine formation and described the first remains of this species. That's an important find. Yeah. This species is unusual in that it has no atapomorphies. Uh-oh. Doesn't make it much of a species. But phylogenetically, it's in between. They said it was an intermediate taxon between species of Lambiosaurus and Hippacrosaurus altospinus, but it shares more characteristics with Hippacrosaurus than Lambiosaurus. Hmm, okay. Yeah, sometimes you can name a species based on a combination, like a mosaic of features, rather than having anything that's completely unique. So I guess that's what they're going for there. Yeah. The worn teeth of the embryos show that they ground their teeth in the eggs and that teeth were functional when they hatched. Wow. And ontogenetic changes include an increase in the rows of teeth, development of the nasal crest, Changes in proportion of the orbits to skull size, eyes, and other changes. Sounds a lot like humans. Mm -hmm. Our eyes get proportionally smaller. We get more teeth. (laughs) Well, any teeth in (laughs) our case. Our noses get bigger. We're not born with 
functional teeth. No, that's nuts. <laughs> and they managed to do that in like a couple months. Yeah. Whereas after nine months, we got nothing. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, when you're born. But once after you're born. So in 2010, David Evans compared skulls and looked at the systematics of Hippacrosaurus altispinus. He looked at 15 skulls and found that the crest grew larger as it aged, which isn't surprising. I think that happens with a lot of dinosaurs. Yeah, a lot of times we think it's a display structure for like finding a mate. You don't need that when you're little. And he found the nasal passage had an S loop with the lower half extending to the skull roof level. There's a lot of Hippacrosaurus specimens ranging from embryos to adults. And in 2016, Gregory Erickson and others decided to look at Hippacrosaurus and Protoceratops embryos. They used CT scans and found that Hippacrosaurus incubated in 171 days, which is much longer than expected. This is actually the species that I was referring to and the authors used last week when we were talking about the baby dinosaurs in the Arctic. Mm. I think they were using Hippacrosaurus in that 171-day cycle for estimating if they could incubate during the summer and then like how long into the winter it would take. <laughs> and they were like, oh, 171 days is basically the entire summer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They figured that out based on lines of growth in the embryo teeth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Teeth lags. There's <laughs> daily growth lines called von Ebner lines, and they're formed when the enamel forms on embryo teeth. That's right. I forgot about those. That is handy. Yeah. There's the liquid dentin, the layer under the enamel that fills inside the tooth and then mineralizes every night. And once the tooth is completely filled in, the lines stop forming. Nice. The von Ebner lines are used to find tooth formation and incubation times in alligators, humans, and other mammals. They have been used anyway. Cool. Yeah, I guess, I mean, we do have those teeth like in our, they're not erupted, mm -hmm. but they are in our head. So maybe I was being unfair with our complete lack of teeth when right. we were born. They exist. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not useful yet. The long incubation times, you know, 171 days, that's not good during an extinction event. No. Which would have been bad for Hippacrosaurus. They found that young and embryonic specimens had deep skulls and a slight expansion in the bones, and that would turn into a crest. A Hippacrosaurus egg was about 8.8 .8 pounds or 4 kilograms, and for comparison, ostrich eggs are a little over 1 kilogram. <laughs> wow, so it's four times the ostrich egg. Mm -hmm. They got to grow into their egg. Mm -hmm. That's why it takes so long. <laughs> Lisa Cooper and others studied a Hippacrosaurus specimen in 2008, and they looked at lags, and they found that that specimen they were looking at was about probably 13 years old. They found that Hippacrosaurus was reproductively mature by age two or three. So that means that they could reproduce quickly, and that's a sign of being a prey animal. Mm. Even though they were capable of it at two or three, a lot of times they're not actually mating at that age though because there's always that competition yep. and a lot of times like the youngest ones can't pull it off yeah but i guess in a pinch <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah in an, in an emergency post-extinction event or something they also found that hippacrosaurus grew faster than tyrannosaurids and tyrannosaurids preyed on hippacrosaurus because their tooth marks found in a fibula so that means that hippacrosaurus could get large enough quickly to defend itself it may have reached full size around age 10 or 12, and that's compared to tyrannosaurs. Tyrannosaurs take 20 to 30 years based on, this is all based on growth rings and leg bones. Yeah, 10 or 12, that was when tyrannosaurs were just starting to get into their growth spurt. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, hippacrosaurs had quite a jump start on them growth-wise. 
And then last year, in 2020, Alita Bayuel and others found cartilage traces on a hatchling skull of Hippacrosaurus stabingeri. They isolated some cells to test with DNA staining, and it tested positive to possible chemical markers of DNA in a way similar to emu cells. They dyed living emu cells and compared the two. They didn't think that this was due to fossil contamination, and that could mean the DNA lasts longer than previously thought. Yeah, we actually interviewed Alita about that in episode 279, titled Traces of DNA in Dinosaur Cartilage. Funny (laughs) enough. (laughs) So we go way more in depth, but I'll give you an overview here. They used two types of stains, one that attached to DNA fragments in dead cells and one that attached to any kind of DNA. And they were binding to specific molecules and not the whole cell, and that's why the team didn't think there was any kind of bacterial contamination. The cells came from cartilage in the skull of a baby Hippacrosaurus. They found cells that looked to be frozen and in the process of dividing, and the cells with nuclei, and one cell that seems to contain something that resembles chromosomes. The structures within certain tissues were consistent with cartilage cells, and they had internal structures that resembled nuclei and chromosomes. But the pieces were too short to read to confirm if it is DNA. It does, though, support the idea that some fragmentary DNA may remain in the cells. Yeah, but we weren't talking about, like, sequencing a genome or anything to that effect with these fragments. Yes. And they, in the paper, they said, you know, there needs to be more research. But if it's upheld, it means that biochemical traces of animals could be around tens of millions of years longer than previously thought. Emphasis on the traces, not on the full (laughs) genetic sequence of a dinosaur. Yes. As a counter-argument... It might be too difficult to tell when the traces of DNA come from a dinosaur or if they just look like they come from a dinosaur, but it's actually DNA traces of something else like bacteria and other microorganisms. And that's based on what Renshing Liang and others found on a centrosaurus. So it's still early days, need more research, there's a lot of unknowns, and probably need more standardized processes. The team that tested Hippacrosaurus used DNA staining, and the team that tested on Centrosaurus used DNA sequencing. So it's a little bit different. You also need the ability to replicate these results. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place as Hippacrosaurus altispinus, which was found in the Horseshoe Canyon formation, included Hadrosaurids, Edmontosaurus, and Sorolophus, the Hypsilophodont Parxosaurus, the Ankylosaurid Anodontosaurus, the Nodosaurid Edmontonia, Ceratopsians Montanoceratops, Anchiceratops and Pachyrhinosaurus, Pachycephalosaurids like Stegosaurus, Ornithomimosaurs like Ornithomimus and Struthiomimus, Tyrannosaurs like Albertosaurus and Displetosaurus, and Troodontids and Dromaeosaurids. Just to name a few, there's a lot going on in the Horseshoe Canyon formation. Yes, there's also <laughs> a lot going on in the Two Medicine formation because other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place as Hippacrosaurus stabingeri included the hadrosaurs, myosaur, and proserolophus, troodontids like troodon, tyrannosaurids like displetosaurus, dromaeosaurids like bambiraptor and sauronithylestes, ankylosaurs, hypsilophodonts, and ceratopsians. There's a lot of ceratopsians. The area was further away from the western interior seaway, so it was higher and drier than the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And for our fun fact, since it's just after the 4th of July. In America. It's the 4th of July everywhere. Oh, I see. <laughs> but in America, but the that's... the holiday in the U.S. Yes. Independence Day here, or to our British friends, Happy Treason Day. What? Because <laughs> it's the day that... Does anyone Americans... say that? Yeah, apparently it's a thing. Huh. I don't know how popular it is, but I enjoy that. So I wanted to give some fun details about our national dinosaur, which is the bald eagle. The bald eagle is the largest non-vulture raptor in North America. So sometimes people say it's the largest true raptor, but really, vultures are true raptors too. I don't know why people say that. They just don't like vultures, I guess. Mm. They don't look as pretty as bald eagles. No, they don't. On average, bald eagles are 9.1 pounds or 4.1 kilograms in weight, and they have about a 6 foot 7 inch or 2 meter wingspan. So they are pretty big birds. Mm -hmm. They can also grip with 400 PSI of pressure thanks to their sharp talons and powerful leg muscles. Ouch. Yeah. I always, it's interesting, like birds grip with their feet. Sometimes I forget that because you think like you grip with hands. What mm -hmm. do you mean gripping with feet? But it's their feet. <laughs> what hands? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> their hands are in their wings, which obviously that high pressure is useful because they need to grab slippery prey since they eat a lot of fish. Although the bald eagle is our national bird, it's not unique to the U.S. by any stretch. There is at least one breeding pair of bald eagles in every state and province in the continental U.S. and Canada. So it's pretty much ubiquitous across all of the U.S. and Canada, although they can also be found in some of the northern states of Mexico. When the U.S. was founded, there were roughly a quarter to a half a million bald eagles in the country. That's a lot of bald eagles. Yeah. Unfortunately, habitat loss, hunting, poisoning, and other factors reduced the population to its minimum of about 500 pairs in the contiguous U.S. in the early 1960s. Wow. So from 500,000 down to... 500. Yeah, but that's pairs, so maybe 1,000. Still, a, you know, many orders of magnitude reduction. There were lots of laws and a lot of effort put into the recovery of the bald eagle. It makes sense. It's the national bird. <laughs> It'd be pretty depressing <laughs> if we made our national bird extinct. In 2007, the efforts had been so successful that it was actually delisted from the endangered species list, and it now has a risk level of least concern. Which Least concern? Yeah, that's as low as it goes. So it's like near threatened is the one, one worse than that, and then it gets into threatened, endangered, critically endangered, extinct mm. in the wild, all that. So it was all the way down to endangered, and it's moved through the full improvement up to least concern, which is pretty awesome. Good. 
And because in 2007 it was delisted, I think a lot of the conservation research focus stopped. So the most recent data I could find was from 2007, looking at how many mating pairs there were in each state. And according to that, the contiguous state with the most bald eagles is Minnesota with over 1,300 breeding pairs. Nice. Yeah, the area of the country that has the most is around the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River starts in Minnesota, so I guess that makes sense. But if you go outside of the contiguous U.S., Alaska has way more. I think the estimates are like thirty to 50,000 <laughs> bald eagles. They have a, a ridiculous number up there. There are also a couple myths about bald eagles. One is that bald eagles eat human babies. What? I didn't know that was a myth. I've never heard that. Or that they eat pets. I think this is just a misconception that people have about eagles. And it might be why people hunted them so much because they were afraid of them. They're, they're a large scary bird that eats animals mm -hmm. so you know if you're if you're farming or something or you have your kids outside you might be afraid of them but bald eagles eat mostly fish it makes up over 50 percent of their diet on average the next largest thing is other water birds mm. <laughs> including their eggs like a real oviraptor one oh, might yeah. say because they're a raptor get it oh i see <laughs> i'm eggs. thinking eggs are also an easy meal if you can get them yes I mean, so are other water birds, I guess, if you can get them. Like, they eat ducks and stuff. Oh, wow. Apparently Canadian geese, too. Sometimes they eat. Oh, those are big, too. Yeah. Occasionally, they do eat mammals. They'll eat rabbits, squirrels, small raccoons, beavers, deer, and rarely lambs or seal pups. It's just like anything. You don't pass up on an easy meal. Correct. And they do also scavenge, including I found a bunch of pictures of them eating beach whales. Nice and blubbery. Yeah. <laughs> One other myth, which I've heard reported many times, is that Benjamin Franklin wanted the turkey to be the national bird. That's a myth. That is a myth. But he does mention the turkey and bald eagles in a fantastic letter, which is mostly about criticizing the Society of Cincinnati, which is basically an American Revolution frat. What, what does that mean? <laughs> so it's like a bunch of dudes who like were really happy about the American Revolution and wanted to make a group all about it, like a society for it. And they called it the Society of Cincinnati. It's based on a famous Roman who was late in the Roman Empire. And like he famously, once he served his country, basically gave up his title and then like went back to being a farmer. Mm. So that's why they named it that. He thought it was stupid. So he wrote a letter about it and he addressed it to his daughter. But researchers think that he addressed it to his daughter just because he wanted to make it seem like it wasn't a political statement. Mm. It's a very wily man, that Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. But I'm going to read an excerpt from it because I think it's wonderful. He said, quote, others object to the bald eagle as looking too much like a dindon or turkey. For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as the representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. <laughs> He does not get his living honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree where, too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk, and when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to its own nest for the support of his mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. <laughs> With all this injustice, he is never in good case. But like those among men who live by sharping and robbing, he is generally poor and often very lousy. <laughs> wow. Besides, he is a rank coward. <laughs> 
the little kingbird, not bigger than a sparrow, attacks him boldly and drives him out of the district. He is therefore by no means a proper emblem for the brave and honest Cincinnati of America who have driven all the kingbirds from our country, though exactly fit for that order of knights with the French call knights of industry. (laughs) Harsh. I am on this account not displeased that the figure is not known as a bald eagle, but looks more like a turkey. For in truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird. (laughs) And withal, a true original native of America, eagles have been found in all countries, but the turkey was peculiar to ours, the first of the species seen in Europe being brought to France by the Jesuits from Canada and served up at the wedding table of Charles IX. He besides, though a little vain and silly, tis true, but not the worse emblem for that, a bird of courage, and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on, end quote. Scathing. <laughs> I will say, when Ben Franklin was alive, turkeys looked different. I mean, they have that big fan of feathers behind them, I think is what he's talking about with them looking like glamorous. Yeah. I was thinking though, when we see wild turkeys, they look very different to the kinds of turkeys you buy for Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. They're not as bulky. Mm -hmm. That's true. Although I've never had a turkey. I have heard people talk about wild turkeys and like gangs of them and like harassing people. Mm -hmm. Like a friend from Boston saying like they would keep you in your car and they wouldn't let you get out and stuff like that, which certainly bald eagles don't do. We've seen, whenever I've seen wild turkeys, it's in groups of six or more. Yeah. I would love to know Ben Franklin's thought on non-avian dinosaurs, though, because I think he wouldn't want, based on his hatred of everything king-related, it seems like he would support the fact that no states have chosen T-Rex as a state dinosaur, Mm. given that Rex means king. But maybe he would be happy with herbivorous dinosaurs. Well, the T-Rex... Well, actually, I don't know if it got if it always got its own meals. It might have stolen from other smaller predators exactly. too. Yeah, I think you could make a lot of these same arguments for T. Rex as you do with the bald eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas it seems like he likes the herbivorous dinosaurs too, because like turkeys mostly herbivorous, and within the U.S. there are uh, there are some good candidates for herbivorous dinosaurs. I think we should have a national dinosaur. I think Brontosaurus maybe could be a good choice. There you are bringing up sauropods again. Yeah. I I mean, it's big. It's maybe ferocious in the right situation, but in general keeps to itself. It's not stealing things from other people, (laughs) other dinosaurs very often. But excelsus does mean noble, which might not be ideal. Hmm. And ankylosaurus could also be a good candidate, but it's also been found in Canada. So that one might also be out. But he mentions that turkeys were found in Canada and doesn't have a problem with that. So really what I'm saying is if I could time travel, I'd like to ask Benjamin Franklin what dinosaur should be our national bird. And he would say, what are you talking about? Because the term dinosaurs hadn't been coined yet. Well, it's got to be like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I got to be able to like bring him back. Oh, okay. With me. So he knows yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Then you ask him. Yeah. Exactly. That would be weird. <laughs> yeah. But if you have an idea about what would be a good national non-avian dinosaur for the U.S. or another country, then I tweeted, and you can respond to that tweet, or you can post it in our Discord, because I'm very curious what people have to say about that. Specifically non-avian dinosaur. Yeah, because we already have our avian dinosaur. It does sound like Benjamin Franklin 
did like turkeys. So I could see where that myth came around. Yeah. Yeah. The main thing that makes it a myth is that he decidedly never recommended the turkey being the national bird. He basically just said, I'm not a big fan of the bald eagle. The turkey is pretty cool. But the only reason he brought up turkeys is because they made this ugly looking quote unquote bald eagle that he thought looked more like a turkey. And then he was like, well, while I'm on the subject of turkeys, I guess they are pretty cool. But it was never like uh, this is way after even the national bird had been established. It was already on a different seal because he's talking about the Cincinnati of America group, not like the national seal. So, yeah. It would make sense that somebody who was part of the revolution would have such strong opinions. <laughs> it's true, yeah. So yeah, let us know what you think would be a good national non-avian dinosaur for the U.S. or any country. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. You can help us get to our next milestone where we'll be doing a live Q&A on YouTube and all you have to do is join our Patreon, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again and until next time. Good day.